We have the highest initiation rates in decades, with about 86% of families initiating breastfeeding, meaning right after delivery, baby's first intake is breast milk. That is huge because that's across all populations, uninsured, insured, out-of-pocket, private pay, rural, urban. That's huge. Unfortunately, two out of three of those families are not even able to make it to what's minimally recommended, which is to exclusively breastfeed for six months. And, you know, as I say it, I think today's generation population goes, God, really six months? Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. This show's success is largely due to you and the way you share the podcast with others and leave reviews. So thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful to have the most amazing guest to guide you in your parenting journey. Topics about all things parenting, newborn and child health, child development and parental health. Today's guest is Amanda Gorman. She's the founder and chief clinical officer at Nest Collaborative and a pediatric nurse practitioner. And we're talking about why breastfeeding rates are so low in the United States. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, well, I'm so happy that we're having this conversation and that you are joining me to talk about this because compared to a lot of other developed countries and just countries in general, United States has very low breastfeeding rates and there's a lot of systemic issues at play here, but I cannot wait to have a deeper dive with you on why this is. But before we get into that, tell us more about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much. So like you mentioned, I am the founder and chief clinical officer at Nest Collaborative. Nest Collaborative is an online platform where we offer not only virtual lactation telehealth support, but we offer a preventive model of care, which hopefully will make a little more sense as to why by the time we get to the end of the conversation. But we do offer these services every day, seven days a week. We have a wonderful team of about 75 board certified consultants, and we do this in a bit of a different way, hopefully to address what we're going to talk about, which are low extended rates of breastfeeding in the U.S. Amazing. And at the end, we will be linking resources and obviously more about the Nest Collaborative as well. So we'll have that for you as well for all of our listeners. But where do we even begin? So first, why are rates so low, but also percentages of what we see in the United States in terms of breastfeeding rates, maybe initiation and also at six months to a year or whatever we have there? Yeah, so I will start back with kind of where and how I discovered this problem. And that was in my own primary care practice. I'm not independent. I worked in a large public hospital out in San Francisco doing pediatric primary care. And I staffed a clinic where we specifically saw newborns who had been discharged early. So we would see them back on day of life two or three to monitor their weight and their bilirubin, which you may be familiar with. Babies are at risk for jaundice. Actually, breastfeeding is a preventer of uh, jaundice. So we would see them back check those data points, I'd hand newborn baby back to mom and every mom would then look at me with engorged breasts and say, can you help me feed the baby? Mm. And I would say, no, I have absolutely no idea how to help you feed this baby. And I thought to myself, why don't I know this vital piece of information for human development if I am a pediatric provider and quickly realized that we in pediatrics are not trained in lactation support. OBs are not trained in lactation support. And these families had very little resources to get them through this really, what is typically a really tricky time period. And I realized, wow, we're doing this promotion, this healthcare promotion, promoting breastfeeding, and we don't have the preventive resources to help them through it. 
I, at that point, hadn't had kids. So I didn't really know the problem until about two years later. I gave birth out there at Kaiser San Francisco, great resource uh, health system. I was in healthcare. SF is a huge breastfeeding friendly city. I had the health insurance. I paid the cash out of pocket to get the lactation consultant to come. And still, it was a nightmare. Mm. It was just more difficult than I ever anticipated. Frankly, the entire birthing process and experience for me, I was a bit traumatized more that I was actually a trained trauma nurse and had no idea what I was in for. So I was more or less a woman scorned when I started Nest Collaborative because here I had been taught, uh, you know, I went to nursing school at Columbia at UCSF and we we were taught how important the medical home is and that that the families have a root. And if they're seeing ancillary providers, whether that's a neurologist or a behavioral health or a lactation consultant, it all needs to get fed and be integrated together. And so the collaborative piece of Nest Collaborative is really an attempt to address that because our families, we'd go see the lactation consultant who would guide us and then that information information never circled back to the pediatrician. So number one, families don't have consistent advocacy and consistent messaging because like I said, pediatric providers mostly aren't trained and they're trained to get that baby fed and growing. And if that is combination feeding or formula feeding, then that's what they're going to do. They don't want this baby readmitted for jaundice. They don't want failure to thrive. Um, so it made sense to me because we had the lactation specialist kind of floating outside of the solar system. I realized also in that firsthand experience that affordability was a big issue. I've always used uh, or worked in public health systems, huge Medicaid populations. So how are we expecting them to pay this two, $300 out of pocket to get these lactation specialists in? That's not going to happen. Frankly, I myself hoped the problems went away because I wasn't going to do this routinely every week. And then the biggest problem is we had a provider shortage. We only have about 18,000 more or less board certified lactation consultants in the U.S., many of whom are working in the hospital system and they're not available in the community. And what we're doing is offering these families the third Thursday night meeting at the local hospital once a month. What we do know is babies don't work on banking hours, all right? So when there's a feeding problem and mom's in pain, baby's hungry, we can't wait weeks and we can't even wait days. And that's really what we're looking at. If we find someone in the community who's even available, we need help typically within 24 hours or less. So we had an access issue. We had an affordability issue. We had uh, barriers related to poor integration into the medical homes. And that's kind of where I started was how do we create something that adequately addresses those barriers but is also following what the evidence says actually works. So how do we implement interventions that are proven to extend the duration of breastfeeding along with addressing these barriers? So big hill to climb, but that's where we started. And I'm thrilled that that's where we got. Telehealth just happened to be a vehicle that we experimented with to address the provider shortage. And we didn't know if this was really going to work. We didn't know if you could adequately and effectively help families virtually. It was a very new concept in 2017. No one was looking for virtual telehealth, right? Mm-hmm. So, or rather virtual breastfeeding support. So how were families going to find us? Frankly, the medical homes thought we were a little bonkers because, you know, naturally pediatric providers and OBs said this needs to be hands-on. Yeah. We didn't have an option. Let's try it. And lo and behold, we found very quickly it, it works. 
Well, also in the pandemic, we've realized that a lot of things had to turn to virtual. So you had started this obviously before the pandemic, but in the pandemic with the lack of being able, you know, especially in those early months, uh, being able to go inside homes or have that hands-on, you had to pivot to um, more virtual. But I had asked also about the rates. What rates are we seeing um, for breastfeeding right now in the United States? Yeah. So the irony is we have the highest initiation rates in decades with about Mm -hmm. 86% of families initiating breastfeeding, meaning right after delivery, baby's first intake is breast milk. That is huge because that's across all populations, uninsured, insured, out-of-pocket, private pay, rural, urban. That's huge. Unfortunately, two out of three of those families are not even able to make it to what's minimally recommended, which is to exclusively breastfeed for six months. And, you know, as I say it, I think today's generation population goes, God, really six months? Because that's how hard it's become. The status quo has made it impossible to get to this point. But the point is so important because that's where we actually see true impacts on health, not only baby's health, but mom's health. And we're talking short-term impacts and long-term impacts. So moms are less likely to stay in the hospital as long if they're breastfeeding. They're less likely to return to the hospital for complications like maternal hemorrhage. Baby's less likely to return for jaundice or failure to thrive. Baby will have lower infection rates, ear infections, cold viruses, during that time period, lower ear infections, which turns into lower rates of speech therapy, which turns into lower rates of ear tubes. And then not even to mention the longer term, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, breast cancers. We need these families to get there as a form of preventive care. It's no different than an apple a day. But unfortunately, we've got major barriers, affordability. Traditionally, this has been extremely difficult to get insurance companies to pay for. That's something Nest Collaborative has tackled greatly. And and one of the things I'm most proud of is that we work very hard to get these services covered, which they should be. And legally, they're mandated to be. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.
the access issue. You can't just call and get a lactation consultant. So when moms are in pain or baby is hungry, we're going to terminate breastfeeding. It's not viable for most of these families because they have no other options. We've then got the whole employer issue. Moms are going back to work. We have really poor family leave, the worst family leave globally here. And so moms, unfortunately, they don't feel they're going to get the adequate support at work. They're scared about doing the whole transport, pumping, Mm -hmm. milk, freezing. Kids are going to daycare where they're less likely to be adequately fed with things like paste bottle feeding, you know, so that you have techniques and styles that are forcing not overfeeding, but intake to be heightened, which means our production for pumping needs to be high. It's it's very complicated and, and there's very little support. So that's an early termination risk for families. And then you've got just kind of the sociological scene. We are having babies later and we have smaller families, which means I was not raised with moms and aunts and uncles who breastfed. I didn't see it as a kid. I was a 79 Mm -hmm. formula fed kid. I didn't live near aunts, uncles, and cousins. I didn't watch it being done. And when I had my baby, I lived in San Francisco. My mom was in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. She wasn't there. So there's just those sociological factors. You know, it's not easy. And then when we go to the people we need to go to, our pediatrician, they go, well, here's a list. You can call them, but it's not available from the providers who we rely on for our care. Yeah, the access issue is a huge one. And I love that you're mentioning that, you know, I am an IBCLC. So I got this after I had my son, I had a horrible experience with an IBCLC in my hospital that I was like, I need to go into this and learn more and be more informed to be able to help my patients. That being said, even though I am an IBCLC, my practice doesn't allow me the time to have Mm -hmm. lactation sessions. So I am able to help the families in the office, but I can't have a 40 minute hour breastfeeding conversation because we have to go over weight, we have to go over safety, we have to go other things. And so it is a systemic issue from our end too. I mean, pediatricians should be educated. And I believe that every pediatrician and every OB, but definitely every pediatrician should have an IBCLC training associated with it, or or maybe even a CLC, something in lactation education so that we can educate more informed choices on breast bottle, because I am a supporter of both. I love breastfeeding education, but I also know that some families that 14% that didn't want to initiate breastfeeding, there are families who don't want to, or it doesn't work out for them. And so I love to have that, but we can't do that as practitioners unless we have the real true know-how and licensing to do so. I have two follow-up questions. You mentioned about affordability. I think there is a misconception about affordability with people say, oh, breastfeeding is free, but you just brought up perfectly that it isn't technically free. Obviously, there's hours put into it, which a lot of families that I take care of in lower socioeconomic status is these moms are going back to work and have multiple children they don't have the time sometimes to breastfeed that bottle feeding is from a time perspective better for those families. But then also in terms of affordability, pumping. I mean, I'm starting to buy everything for my second baby and like looking at the price of pumping bags, like the milk storage bags, but also the pump. And if you don't have health insurance, you don't get that covered. Is that what you're seeing also with that affordability? Is it that obviously access to lactation consultants, but also all the different pieces that make breastfeeding happen? Yeah, absolutely. Those costs are pretty penny. They should be covered like 
diabetic syringes. Yes. And we're getting there. But, you know, unfortunately, we have generations who, who have missed out and will continue to miss out until we do get there. And I think you bring up a great point. And, you know, at Nest, where we are not Best is best. We're not fed as best. You know, our job is to provide the evidence-based information to families, allow them to make their informed choices. And then our job is to help them get there. And if that's, I'm weaning today because I've decided to wean, our job is to help them wean safely. You know, but the conversation around breast and formula is such a polarized conversation. And especially as we saw the formula shortage come last year, you know, we were approached quite a bit to comment on breast versus formula. And I said, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. That's not what we are here to do. We're not here to act as converts. <laughs> you know, we have a very yeah. highly, highly educated generation in terms of their healthcare. You know, that is not our job. But even yourself, you know, I think the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a small little survey or study that they had done on female pediatricians who actually said, you know, we don't actually advocate as much as Subconsciously, we don't advocate as much because of our own experience coming back to work and trying to navigate pumping that we haven't been as successful. And we find that that implicit kind of bias goes into our practice. So there are so many barriers that really, you know, the people who are out there saying breast is free and breast versus formula, I don't think really understand that the choice isn't really that easy. And the choice isn't always in the person. Like I think when you look at a woman who wants to breastfeed, a lot of times the mentality could be, and I've heard this, I've heard this from women in my office that, oh, well, you took the easy way out. You didn't try hard enough. And it's not that when there's a systemic issue. And I, the second question I, I, or comment that I had was about that maternity leave comment that you made that I see this a lot that I have a lot of women coming into my office, a lot of my friends in America who have to go back at three months postpartum, right? You don't get a full maternity leave, you get three months and oh my gosh, it's not enough time. Okay. Like every country should have at least six months, six months minimum, because that is important for the first six months of the baby's life, but also for that new mom or new dad or new caregiver for bonding, all of that. But breastfeeding, I mean, some women, it takes them three to four months to even get in the groove. And then now you're saying, okay, bye, I'm going to go do pumping, tanking of supply. I mean, I see this all the time and the stress adds to that, right? The stress, like you mentioned, of having to find a room. Many offices, many places still do not have the adequate resources for a pumping space. I think the Pump Act just went into play that, uh, you know, mandates that, hey, employers have to have these things, but it's going to take time for employers to actually catch up and say, you know what, we support this. There is even in pediatrics, I'm going to be honest, I work at a pediatric practice. When I talked to my old employer about wanting to breastfeed and pump, there was a conversation of, well, you still have to make sure that you see your patients. We don't really have a room for you. And this is in a pediatric office. I didn't have a designated area for me. They would have put like a little room divider while I sit and pump. And that's stressful. Like for me, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. I subsequently ended up not breastfeeding for other reasons, but I already had stress about that. I was like, I have to come back at three months postpartum, full-time doctor schedule, seeing 40 patients a day, having to go and pump and look at my kid's picture for like 20 minutes, hoping that I can get some milk going. And that is a very stressful experience. In your understanding, you know how we talked about the initiation rates are there, but by six months, it drops significantly. Do you feel like that's happening because 
of the accessibility, affordability? Or do you think the mat leave thing is a big part of this? Oh, I think the mat leave is a huge part of it. Yeah. I think in general, postpartum anxiety levels are up because of all these things that we've just talked about. But also, like you said, breastfeeding is, you know, I kind of hate the word journey, but it's a continuum. And yeah. there are serious points of transition. So what is working, what's finally clicking at three weeks is completely upended at six weeks. And then we've got teething and we've got starting solids. And then we have the, oh my gosh, I have to start to use this pump and figure out how to appropriately use this pump. I mean, there's nothing significant about 12 weeks that should make it the return, you know, and then we've got our own maternal care. You know, women are devoid of their own care from zero to six weeks. And there's a lot going on with our bodies, a lot going on that we're trying to learn and deal with. So absolutely the mat leave has a huge impact. And frankly, the word from at least a lot of the IBCLCs I talk about is the pump act. That's not going to do much because we've got all these other barriers. You know, it is so many goodness. Yes. It is addressing a big barrier. However, it's only one. So absolutely. And, you know, our approach on the preventive front is to really mirror what we see in pediatrics. We have a periodicity chart. We see babies at certain intervals because that's what the evidence shows makes healthier babies. When we see them at, you know, one month, two month, four, six, that's what we know is going to produce healthy babies. So we at NAS, we set up a very similar preventive periodicity recommendation because we're able to offset and prepare mom for what's coming and curtail those problems and those concerns. And when mom is educated more on what's coming, she can better prepare. We help her transition. And we also do more precise risk assessments because every family has a different situation. You may be going back to work at 12 weeks. You may have three other kids, right? Feeding on demand is great and easy with the first, but not when you have three other kids, you're shuffling around. You may be living with your mother-in-law who's stacking cans of formula and secretly feeding the baby formula behind your back. I mean, or you may have had a mastectomy and therefore your situation looks very different. So there's a lot, but absolutely yeah. with you know, mat leave and family support, even for the partner parent. Because if you don't get a baby to breastfeed and they are sick more often, you know, employers are going to see higher absentee rates yeah. from the breastfeeding parent or the partner parent. You know, someone's got to take the kid in. Someone's got to yeah. stay home. Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. 
don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Oh, it's such a, like you said, multifactorial issue here that is really stressful. I mean, and I'm happy we're having this conversation because like going back to the comments we've already made that so many times I hear mothers feel so guilty about ending their journey that they didn't try hard enough. And they get that commentary from social media accounts. Maybe they have a mother-in-law who's so pro breastfeeding. It was like, I breastfed all my kids until they were three years old Mm -hmm. and you're not able to. And then on that flip side, you feel like, what am I doing wrong? When it really, what we've already discussed in so many situations, it is systemic stuff that is barrier for that mom to be able to breastfeed as long as she may desire. And stress is a part of it. I know stress is such a broad term, but like the stress of not having support postpartum, the stress of being able to afford a lactation consultant and going back to work and leaving your baby. And then all the things that you mentioned, the access, affordability, mat leave. So how can we make an impact to get these things change? You know, I know your, you know, Nest Collaborative is working on this, but what do we do from here? Like how would we as an individual advocate if we want to be a breastfeeding parent, or even if we don't, to help those who do want to breastfeed? Patience, clearly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Education. I think we as providers and clinicians have an obligation to start getting the data, to start really looking at the data and the outcomes on new interventions, whether that's prevention or the pump act, Mm -hmm. because that's what unfortunately or fortunately we need to start moving the needle on the regulatory, um, whether that's healthcare regulatory or employer regulatory. That I see is our job, but I think person to person and parent to parent is patience and respect and no judgment, acknowledging it's difficult, starting the conversations and being gentle on ourselves and communicating that to the community to be gentle on parents. Parenting looks very different now than it did 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. certainly than it did 20 plus years ago. You know, on the clinical side, we need more clinical outcomes. We need more research because that's where hospitals and health systems and payers That's what forces them to adopt new pathways, but also speaking out and making a splash. You know, I am proud of what we've done, especially with payer reimbursement is we've held them to it. And, you know, I think that's, we talked earlier, you know, I am not an IBCLC. And so the position I took in our company was to fight the fight. It is ridiculous to hand a healing mother with a newborn and engorged breasts, a super bill, and to tell mm-hmm. them to give Aetna a call in between feeds and see if you can get them to pay for this because I'll tell you the answer is no. Yeah. In your ideal world, what would be systemic changes that you would say like in America, we need X, Y, and Z now? Like if you were running for political office and could change the course of America to promote breastfeeding, what would you want for every mom who decides to breastfeed? I'm giggling because there's no way I will ever be running for anything politically. However, you know, we're a capitalistic society and Mm -hmm. those are the constraints that that's what we're working with, right? 
And that is not going to change for a while if it ever does. So yeah. we need the payer reimbursement. We need adequate coverage. We need, if we're going to maintain a focus on prevention in this country, then we need to understand the repercussions fully. Everyone, all stakeholders need to understand the repercussions. And the repercussions isn't just one sicker generation. It's two sicker generations, right? We have parents and babies and it's impacting their health long-term. We need to understand the implications on costs. It's estimated that Inadequate rates of breastfeeding in the U.S. today cost more than $18 billion a year in healthcare costs that could be mitigated if we could get these families to six months. Payer reimbursement is first and foremost. Now, again, is that ever going to happen with a snap? Probably not. And then the mandate of employers, I think, not only to be supportive, but we need to extend leave and truly start to support parents making these pathways easier. I wish we could improve the demand on primary care providers right now. It's really easy to say, like you said, let's get IBCLCs in every pediatric office, but pediatric providers are seeing 40 patients a day and still trying to maintain adequate salaries to cover their families. I mean, it's, we've got a healthcare problem in this country and I hate that I'm, all I'm doing is identifying more problems. I don't know, but it's true. You're right. I mean, there is so much that needs to happen. And I think you said it perfectly. Like the bottom line is when you live in a capitalistic society, and I know we're getting into more politics and stuff like that, but it's important to understand every issue that we have goes down to the line that America wants people back into workplace quicker. So we know this, that in order to get health insurance, that's kind of the better in health insurance, you have to have a job, right? So if you don't have a job, tough nuts. You have to go out Mm -hmm. on the marketplace where you get bad. So now they're already from a capitalistic standpoint, making you go to work to get health insurance. And then number two, and for all these working women that have babies, most states in this country, not all, but most states are requiring you to go back to work. And it's like, you can have both. We see other countries European countries, the United Kingdom, I know for a fact, and even Canada, our neighbors to the north, are able to have resources where you can stay out and still get your salary. And it's such a sad reality that we are dealing with this. And I do believe that we are making noise and screaming, but it sometimes feels like you're screaming into the void and just like, hey, I need help. I need help. Oh, don't worry. You have this and that. It's like, no, like this needs to change. You know, I'm having a daughter if she decides that she would like to be a mother or my son decides that he wants to be a father one day, I want them to have leave. Not like my husband who only gets two weeks unpaid or me who gets three months unpaid and then I have to pay my employer the time that I'm gone because I don't get FMLA. I have to pay them for my health insurance. Like it's so bonkers that I'll be out of work and I have to pay my company $1,000 a month so that I can have health insurance. It's so backwards. And I'm a privileged person saying that. And I think about all of my patients who do not have privilege of health insurance, who do not have privilege of money saved aside to maybe hire a lactation consultant if I need it. And it's such a tragedy. Like it's such a tragedy, not just for breastfeeding, but for everything that goes into these families' lives. And I'm so glad that we could talk about this and just, you know, barely touch the surface, but in an important way to start this conversation. Yeah. And I hope, you know, I hope for healthcare consumers, they're utilizing the educational opportunity too, because I feel like patients are very blinded to kind of the other, the underbelly of healthcare, the the business of healthcare, Mm -hmm. that without giving insurance companies or skin in the game when it comes to preventive and cost savings, they're going to continue to look at their bottom lines and their bottom lines, unfortunately, come before healthcare status of their patients. And that has got to flip. 
Mm -hmm. We've got to, you know, and I know we have this, we'll do our next thing on value-based care. You know, we have this, you know, we're looking and we think we can save the world with value-based care, but there's problems to that too. So we just, you're right. We need more leadership, but I would never take the podium on the political (laughs) side. I mean, yes, people like I have my platform. People are like, oh, we, you should totally run for political office. I'm like, there is no way I have zero desire to join that there's a lot of stuff that happens in that political aspect that, you know, donors and things like that. I'm like, no, I want to speak authentically. And this is why I created my podcast. There is nobody telling me what to say. I get to say how I feel. And mm-hmm. this is how I feel. And yes, it aligns with some politicians, but this is how I feel. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. What would be your final message for everyone listening today? I think it's the most be gentle on your friends who are going through their own delivery, birth process, postpartum. Don't scare them, (laughs) but let them know that, you know, that decisions are okay. Obviously, let them know Nest Collaborate is available. We love starting prenatal relationships because we feel like we're really setting parents up for the highest chance of success. But yeah, garble up really good educational sources. Talk to your providers and um, be gentle on your community. Yes. And I am so grateful you joined me today. You obviously have spoken about Nest Collaborative, but where can people stay connected, find you, find more information about Nest Collaborative? Uh, nestcollaborative.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Nest Collaborative. We don't tweet a ton, but that's Nest Collab. But we have a podcast that's not actively recording, but it's very, very useful, which is called Breastfeeding Unplugged, which I recommend for all new parents. It's fun. And I like you really enjoyed doing that and hope to pick it up again sometime soon. Oh, I love it. Yes. Podcasting content creation is a whole other world of excitement and time. So I hope that you do get back into it, but I will be linking that resource, nestcollaborative.com, as well as the social media handles. And thank you again for joining me today. Yes, absolutely. And I wish you all the best with the little lady to show up soon. So congratulations. Yes. And for all of our listeners, you are probably listening to this after baby is here. I, I'm batch recording episodes and I, that's no secret for my listeners on the show. Um, and I'll tell you if I end up breastfeeding or not. I'm very open about my journey. And I am very aware of the fact that if I don't breastfeed, a lot of it is going to be resources driven. I know it. You know, I have a partner who's going to leave me to go back to work at two weeks. I have a three-year-old son. I'm not going to have much help. I'm trying to take it all in stride and say, I want to do this thing for us, but I understand my circumstances and I'm going to do my best. And I hope everyone listening remembers that same thing. Follow your goals. It's okay to pivot. Like you said, if you need to, we can do that. But thanks again for joining us. And if you like this conversation, make sure you leave a review or rating. That is how the podcast continues to grow. And also share it on social media or with a friend. I'm sure you all resonate so deeply with the conversation that me and Amanda had today. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review. Share this episode with a friend. Share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram. And subscribe to my YouTube channel, TV. We'll talk to you soon. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast 
for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.